Okay, let's pray, and we'll, be, we'll begin First John. Uh, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you, uh, Lord, for the work that you are doing in our midst. We thank you, God, that you are a God of, of all peoples and nations, and that you have called your church uh, to be used in this, this great commission. And so, Father, we thank you for Rachel and Isaac and just the, the burden that you've placed on their heart, how you've uh, worked in their lives to bring them to the point where they are now, that you brought them together, that they were married earlier this year, and, Lord, that now uh, that she's already completed and he's now beginning the, the, the first phase of, of heading out into the mission field through uh, Ethnos 360. And so we pray that you would bless uh, their time as a, as a newly married couple, Father, as they begin on this adventure of being equipped, Lord, to go overseas somewhere, wherever it is that you've called them. And so we pray that you'd help Isaac with his studies, that you would continue to just work in their lives to lead them and guide them, to show them uh, what you have in store for them. And Father, we thank you that we can be connected to them in this way. Uh, Father, we pray as we begin this uh, letter of 1 John that is... uh, a difficult letter, a simple letter in some ways, and a very difficult letter in other ways. We pray that as we uh, take a break from Genesis for the next couple months, that you would lead us through this letter. Lord, help us ultimately uh, to grow closer to you in intimacy, that we would uh, be able to experience the kind of koinonia, this fellowship that you um, have said is available to us and that the Apostle John uh, desires us to enter into. And so, Father, we pray that you would bless our study as we enter in to this letter, and it's in Christ's good name I pray, amen. All right, First John, the first four verses. I kind of want to unscramble the egg a little bit before I start, just because it's difficult, so I'm going to give you a little cheater notes here. The first three verses in the Greek is one sentence, and there's only one verb, and the verb doesn't come until verse three, and the verb is that they are proclaiming to us. And so we kind of have to have this nugget as we're reading because you can get lost in all of the other things that are connected to this. So the short version of today is that, they, that John is proclaiming the word of life that's Jesus. And he's writing this so that we could find ultimate joy. And so with that, let me read now. So now you guys know where we're going and you can fall asleep if you are so inclined, but now you know where we're going. Okay. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship was with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. And Father, we do thank you and praise you for your word. We ask that you would lead us now. In Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Um, 1 John is one of these books in the Bible. On, on one hand, it's, it's super simple. Uh, th- this is the book that when you take Greek, if you're in seminary, pretty much seminaries around the world, when they start teaching Greek, 
once you get sort of like the, the beginning stuff down, then you move into translation. And almost, you can't say always, you can't make these absolute statements, but I would say like 90% of Greek professors have the students cut their teeth in 1 John. Because the language, the syntax, the words, they're super simple. Uh, today, I'm kind of like, or not today, this week, I'm kind of like on the one-year anniversary of where I've like, it, like submitted myself to learning Spanish so that my wife and I relationship can be better because Spanish is such a huge, she's not here today, she's in the back room with the kids, but it's like such a huge part of who she is growing up in Spain that I'm like, okay, it's time for me to take on this language so that I can like begin to interact. And so now I can interact with a lot of Spaniards. But I have to, like, when I'm talking, I'm like, you got to use words that a kindergartner would understand. As long as you're talking to me like a kindergartner, I can follow along. When you start going into bigger words, I get lost really easy. And so the words of First John are like a kindergartner can understand each of the words and the sentences of how they flow. Um, it's easy to pull together. However, the difficulty of this book is understanding what these words actually mean when they're all strung together. Like, this is really difficult. Charles Swindoll says this commenting on Greek students learning this book or learning how to translate this book. By the time they get to the fifth or sixth, easy to translate but hard to interpret verse in First John, they're about ready to throw up their hands and surrender. I've met lifelong Bible scholars who confess that they have many unanswered questions about First John, that they have avoided teaching or preaching on it for decades. Let me add my own confession to the pile. I've been preaching through books of the Bible virtually every Sunday since 1963, but not until 2009 did I build enough confidence and courage to tackle 1 John in a verse-by-verse exposition. I read that, and I'm like, what am I thinking? Um, there, there's stuff here that's going like, to force us to, to ponder, to contemplate. I know that this, the adult Sunday school class that meets on Sundays at 8.30 uh, in the back room, they, they just concluded today. And so th- I'm sure they have a whole bunch of questions. And it's sort of like, you know, beef jerky. You start chewing on it, and you're like, I think I'm getting it. I'm getting it. You, I'm getting it. You're like meditating on it. And so I'm going to go to the Sunday school class for my questions because there's going to be a bunch of stuff that's like, ah, this is just tough to understand. And uh, so my prayer is that God will lead us through this. So let's begin with sort of who is John? This is a, a, a book of the Bible. John does not introduce his books, of, uh, the Gospel of John, um, First, Second, Third John. Off the top of my head, with Revelation, I don't think he introduces his name either. Uh, we know stylistically it's the Apostle John. Uh, John was so humbled over the course of his life that he really ended up only referring to himself as either the one whom Jesus loved or as sort of the elder in the church. And so we know about John that during Jesus's earthly ministry, that he was the youngest of all of the apostles. He was the youngest of the disciples, and he was the longest living disciple. At the time of writing here in 1 John, he is the only uh, apostle who is alive that can give sort of a firsthand account of the life of Jesus and who he was and the things he stood for and the things that he taught them and explained to them. Uh, So we see in John's life also, we see this picture of of maturing. My mother-in-law recently purchased um, something. I haven't seen it, but she has all of the grandkids collecting rocks for her. And I think it's like a tumbler of some sort. You can throw the rocks in there. Like we're coming back from vacation. All my kids have all these rocks. I'm like, what are you guys doing with all these rocks? Like, I don't, 
It's like, Grandma wants to do something with the rocks because she's going to tumble them for us. And so the tumbler, it just goes 24-7, and it turns these rocks into these like pretty little rocks because they've been, all the edges have been knocked off. And so over the course of John's life, we've seen him sort of go through God's tumbler. He starts out as this super feisty guy, like early on. Him and his brother are like, there's some people that he's got some concerns with their teaching. He looks at Jesus. He's like, you know what we can do, Jesus? Just say the word. We will pray, and we will have fire come down from heaven, and we'll eliminate them. And then because of this and this sort of attitude that he had, Jesus gave he and his brother this nickname, Sons of Thunder. And... Uh, just this bold guy. But by the end of his life, for us who talk about the Apostle John, we sort of know him as the Apostle of Love, that he'd so softened over the course of his life, he'd been so touched by Jesus, that this, this, this dynamic, bold, courageous young man is now this, this man who is like, I just picture as like a weeping, gentle man, that all he wants to do is talk about the love of God and how uh, transforming it is. Uh, to, to experience Jesus in this way. I think it's fair to say, certainly at the time of his writing, you could make a case uh, during Jesus' life that, that I think you can say that John the Apostle, of all people in human history, this is a man who knew Jesus better than any other individual on the face of the earth. Certainly at the time of his writing, there was nobody who knew Jesus intimately as John knew him. During his life amongst the apostles, we know that there were three that always had access to special things, uh, people being raised from the dead, the transfiguration. There was uh, John, James, and Peter uh, were the three that were in, in the sort of this upper echelon that had special access. And so when we read this letter, when we go through it, this isn't just some person talking sort of in theory about Jesus. This is a person who spent three years of his life intimately close with Jesus. And the reality is many believe that John was a first cousin to Jesus. And so really his whole life in Galilee, he grew up around Jesus. And so what he has to say is really important. Like this, this is an eyewitness account uh, speaking to us about things that matter. So in his gospel, we know in his gospel why he wrote the, the gospel of John. He desired to lead people to Christ. It was evangelistic in nature. In John chapter 20, verse 31, we read, But these things I have written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. His whole aim of the gospel of John is to move people from unbelief to belief and to have assurance that Jesus is indeed Lord and is indeed worthy of our trust for eternal souls. Like this is important stuff. And so then we come to 1 John, and I love as, as complicated as the writing of John can be, he tells us exactly why he's writing. He doesn't leave it to mystery. He doesn't leave it to chance. He tells us specifically why he pens the letter that he pens. And so if John was a fisherman in his vocation, I see this letter sort of like John as a fisherman mending nets. And so he sees some tears that are happening in the church as an old man. He sees false teaching that has creeped into the body of Christ. There were people, the, the Gnostics, who I'll get into, that were saying that uh, Jesus couldn't possibly have had a, a human form. He, didn't, he wasn't really man. And they had secret teaching that sort of was, was pulling away from the basic and elementary teaching of the church. 
And so John felt compelled to write this letter to sort of to, to mend the nets of the church so that they would have right understanding, correct doctrine, and actually know who Jesus is. So in 1 John 1, 4, we read it this morning. John tells us, these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. He wants uh, fullness and joy uh, through his writing. He wants to bring us into completion in our relationship with Christ. 1 John 2, 1, he says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. First uh, John 2.26, a little bit further in that chapter. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. First John 5.13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. And so these people had crept their way into the church and they're, they're producing doubt and concern and sort of uh, incorrect thinking about Jesus. And so John is writing this letter to give a firsthand account of the truth about who Jesus is and to ultimately lead them into correct thinking, correct doctrine, uh, correct lifestyles, that how they live their lives matters to God because these bodies are real. That's not just some make-believe thing that we have. And so he's leading them to sort of assurance in their relationship with Christ. Uh, Stott, on these first four verses, says this. All commentators have found this first paragraph involved in syntax and abstruse. That means hidden in meaning. It is, in fact, a grammatical tangle. We must try to disentangle it. The main verb, which does not occur until verse 3, shows that the process is concerned essentially with the apostolic proclamation of the gospel, what was and why it was made. And so as we begin in verse 1, we sort of have to keep that sort of thought in our minds that where he's going in these verses that we're reading, because it's going to take us a while to get to verse 3, we have to kind of keep in our minds that the aim of where he's going is that they are proclaiming this to us so that we might understand who the word of life is. And we'll get to this, but it's, he's proclaiming to us the word of life. And so we begin. Verse 1, what was from the beginning? Immediately when you read 1 John, it should sort of link you to other places in the Bible. In the beginning, we're, we're pausing our study of Genesis right now. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If we fast forward to John's gospel in John 1.1, he opens up his gospel in this way. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Skipping down a few verses to verse 14, he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Skipping down a few more verses to verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Moving for, further along in John, to John chapter 8, verse 58, a critical verse lies there. Jesus says this statement, before Abraham was I am. So we're talking about the eternity of Christ. And so if we in our brains, for me, it's, it's, it's much easier to sort of move forward 
in my thinking that like, okay, something is created and then it can exist for a very long time, uh, even eternally. But when I start going backwards in human history, what John is saying is that if you walk back through human history to that very beginning day, in the beginning God created, at that point in where history is about to begin, and you take one step beyond that into eternity, there was God. In Genesis, God speaks in the plurality. Throughout the Bible, we see uh, Jesus was included, Jesus himself. Skeptics will say Jesus never claimed to be God. That's absolutely incorrect. John 8, 58, before Abraham was, Abraham, this forefather that we just concluded in Genesis, he says, before Abraham was, I am. I existed in eternity past. Colossians tells us that through Christ, all of what we know, the matter in this realm, he created. And so John, right away, he's about to attack the Gnostics in their thinking. And he's saying this eternity of Christ, there's, a, there's something going on behind the scenes, but for us, what was from the beginning concerning the word of life, the beginning, before creation existed, there was Jesus. And he says, what was from the beginning, what we have heard concerning the word of life. I'm adding the word of life, what we have heard. Now he says, we, who's the we? John is the only remaining apostle, but he's speaking on behalf of all of the apostles who were commissioned with this aim of proclaiming Christ. And he says what we have heard. He's getting to this eyewitness account. He's going to repeat this over and over again, what we, what we heard, what we saw, what we touched over and over and over and over again in these verses. He's making the case that he's an eyewitness account. He's just not making this up. This isn't secondhand information. As a, as, a, as a guy who was in the SEAL teams for a long time, I can't tell you how many individuals I've met over the years that they've heard something about SEAL training. And often it goes something like this. Oh, man, I knew a guy. And what he said is during SEAL training, they blindfold you, and then they take you 10 miles out at sea in the middle of the night, and then they drop you there, and then they leave, and you got to find your way to shore. And then when you get to shore, you have to kill a puppy with a knife. And I like, I like, and that's just not true. And the individual, like, this is an actual story. And then the person's like, no, no, no. I, I talked to the guy, and this is absolutely true. And I'm like, sir, <laughs> I was in the teams for 12 years. My last duty station was first phase, the phase you're talking about. We absolutely don't do that. Like, okay, you're <laughs> national security, right? I'm like, oh, whatever. Like, I like. And so when I see this, John is like so furious with these guys who have come along like decades after what happened, and they're saying these things about Jesus that simply are not true. And he sort of steps forward, saying, no, I was an eyewitness. I heard, I saw, I touched, I walked with him. I'm telling you firsthand what they are saying is incorrect. So what we have heard, they knew him, they walked with him, they were trained by him, their lives were utterly transformed by Jesus. What we have seen with our eyes, they heard him, they saw him, what we looked at and touched with our hands. So not only did they like just see him, it, it wasn't some... Uh, mirage they saw like in the desert, like, I think I see water and I go, like it wasn't, like they saw him. They looked at him intently. They 
they touched with our hands, this word touch at other places in the New Testament, like the four times it's used. Uh, other places, the word groped is used. And it's the, the picture of how a blind person sees. I've only had this encounter once in my life. About 10, 12 years ago, there was a group of individuals that had some, di- some disabilities. One of them was, was blind, and she could barely see, or barely hear. I mean, she couldn't see. She could barely hear. And, and she was, like, super excitable, like, just really, like, happy person. And, w- like, about the third or fourth time I met with her, the person who was, like, kind of wrangling the, the 10 people or so, I'm like, is she okay? Like, is there anything I can do? Because I could tell she's like really excited and there's something like, can I do anything to like help? Like, I'm okay. Like, and she's like, what she wants to do is she wants to touch your face so she can see you. And I was like, yeah, I, like how, odd, how awkward can that be? You know, like let's, <laughs> so I went over there and she's like messing up my hair. She's touching my ears, like grabbing them, but she's like, like screaming like in excitement. And I don't have this reaction on women. Like this is like, like she's like super like, like overwhelmed because now she's able to see with her hands what she's heard and what she, like if she could make out anything. And so when I see this, John's like, we didn't just like see some image. We, we touched him. We felt him. After the resurrection, it wasn't like he just appeared. Remember, Thomas, until I can put my hands in your side, then I'll believe. He said, we saw him, we touched him, everything. This isn't something that we're making up. And he says, concerning the word of life. And so in this letter of 1 John, um, behind me, there's three words. We'll probably keep those three words there. This is like a, a tool to help you. If you can remember those three words, you'll be able to sort of like remember some of the key points in in First John. The Apostle John describes Jesus with these three pictures, the, the word of life. Um, you know, we all remember, or we should, back to the Lord's Supper, John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, he's going to expand on this to say this is eternal life, not just any sort of life. This is eternal life. Uh, next week in 1 John 1, 5, Jesus is going to be described as light, that there's no darkness in him, that he is light, holy, pure. And then in 1 John 4, 8 and 16, Jesus will be described as love, like the purest form of love. And so John is is really going to press home the point on these three issues, life, light, and love. And so then we come to verse 2. Now, verse 2, as we're going through this, remember, it's one long sentence in the Greek. Verses 1 through 3 is one long sentence. Verse 2 is sort of a parenthetical statement. John is writing along. The Apostle Paul does this, and he gets to this, the word of life. And so verse 2, he's going to unpack the word of life. He's, he's, he's like, I have to talk about the word of life. And so concerning the word of life. And so now he's focused on this life, this word of life, this, this individual Jesus. And the life was manifested, that Jesus became man, a real man in every way that when he was born, he went through all of the learning process that a that a baby went through. I mean, I don't know if they had diapers back then, but he's going to the bathroom in his diapers. He's crying for his mom to get food. 
He's like everything that a, hu- like a, that a real human person would do in their development, and Jesus did. Like he struggled as we struggle. He was tempted as we were tempted. He experienced being human fully. This life was manifested. This wasn't some ghost or some phantom that sort of appeared to us and fooled us. This is real. Again, he circles back and he says, we have seen, we testify, and we proclaim to you this eternal life. Like this isn't something that he's making up. Which was with the Father, going back to the beginning. This eternal life from the beginning, you jump off of human history into the past and there is Jesus with the Father speaking of his divinity. And he was manifested to us. So now what he's dealing with is, is this concept that like we as humans cannot, we, we can't really fully understand this. We can give the correct answer. We can say we understand. We can understand. But like the whole how something or somebody is 100% of two things that seem to be in conflict with one another, it's, it's beyond our pay grade. And so what he's dealing with is the theological term of the hypostatic union of Christ, that he's fully God and fully man simultaneously. And he's confronting the Gnostics that said he, that divine cannot be touchable because anything that's touchable can't be holy. It can't be sin-free. An easy way to, re- to remember Gnostics, like this is a very difficult word, I think, because we don't use it. But a word that we are familiar with is agnostic, right? Like most of us know the word agnostic. And what does agnostic mean? If you're, if you're an atheist, that means no way, Jose, can there be God or the divine. Absolutely discredit it. The, the agnostic is a little bit more humble in their approach. There's like, there's no way we can really know. Like, on one hand, I can see there being a God. I can see this stuff. But on the other hand, it just seems crazy to me. Like, and so agnostic means without knowledge. Like we don't have the ability to have the knowledge. So then you have the, the Gnostics, and that means with knowledge. And Aiken on this, I'll just read instead of like quoting from my own on this, what he says about Gnosticism. Historically, John was countering an early form of what is called Gnosticism, a term based on the Greek word that means knowledge. Knowledge appeared in a number of, of varieties, but they all had two basic convictions in common. First, they believed that matter is evil, or at least inferior to spiritual realities. Second, they believed that salvation is by a mystical, even secretive knowledge. This bred to extreme arrogance and pride amongst the Gnostic factions, and it led them to deny with great fervency a true and genuine incarnation of Christ. And so as, as September begins, we're like on the last stretch to Christmas. Love Christmas. Christmas is the incarnation. We celebrate not when Jesus came into existence. We celebrate when Jesus stepped out of heaven, took on the form of a man, and began his life of ministry so that we would know what God looks like and see. And so this is the incarnation. And so the whole incarnation that Jesus was God, that he was fully man, this was under attack. If you're in any sort of denial today that Jesus is under attack in our culture, in our world, you're like, 
I almost want to say, God bless you, because how are you so like, like, like away from all of this? Like everything, like, like from the education system to the media, like everything, there is like a full-blown attack against Jesus and the claims about his being God. Everywhere you go, he's under attack. It was the same back then. And so John is countering this, and he's trying to point God's people back to the truth and the assurance of who Jesus is, what he's doing presently, what he's going to be doing in the future, and how we should live our lives sort of in preparation for this. Because if you read through John, which I'd encourage you to do, it's like five chapters, you see this. Life, light, love. These have implications on our life. By the end of chapter two, he says, we, we need to so abide with Jesus so that when he appears, when he appears and takes the church, takes us away, that we won't shrink away in shame, that we need to walk with him closely. This stuff matters. And so we come to verse three. Sort of we've, we've kind of concluded the parenthetical statement and he's kind of picking up again. And he says, what we have, what we have seen and what, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also. So now we get to the verb. So all of this stuff that he's saying, we now proclaim to you. This is the aim, the proclamation about this word of life. We proclaim this word of life to you so that, always an important word in the English. Like when we're looking at this, this is a, a, what we refer to as a hyna clause. It's a Greek word. It, it's the purpose statement behind what he just said. So what we have seen and we heard and we proclaim to you so that the reason that this is so important, so that you too may have fellowship with us. Now this word fellowship is the Greek word koinonia, which you may have heard. Um, koinonia, this or fellowship. In our day and age, it can be used to uh, in a number of different ways. It could be like, hey, uh, I'm gonna ha- I'm gonna have a backyard party, and we're gonna have some- a barbecue, and we're gonna have some, you know, some cold sodas and chips and desserts, and we're all gonna hang out and have wonderful fellowship, right? It's a word. It's used not just in religious circles, but 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 outside of religious circles. I think in the medical world, they they have fellowships, and it's like this sort of close groups. During this time of writing, how this word was actually used, it was to describe one of the most like, like intimate, personal relationships that humans could experience. This year has been the, the, the year of uh, like, some like weddings, you know, like Isaac and Rachel, Tim and Melanie, like still newlyweds all glowing. And, uh, you know, like, in our day and age, it's like when, when they get back from their honeymoon, they're like, hey, how's married life going for you? I've yet to meet the couple to say, you know, we just, just wonderful fellowship. Like, because it's not a word that we use sort of in the context of, of marriage. But during the time of writing this word koinonia, this is the word that was used to describe this sort of, this relationship between man and woman, not, not in like a, like, get your minds out of the gutter, but like out of, like the closeness, the bond that, that God desires between husband and a wife, that there's, there's no more intimate like, relationship. Like when, when I think about, like I just said earlier, like if you, like you during this time want to know who knew Jesus better than anybody else in the, the world, it would be John the Apostle. 
If you want to know anybody who knows me better than anybody else in the world, it's Anna. Like, she knows me in every possible way, both good and bad. And so this word fellowship is dealing with, like, this intimacy, this closeness, this, this beauty. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 5, this passage that is so often used at weddings about the role between uh, husbands and wife and how they're to interact with one another, Paul in his writing sort of is like, intertwining this relationship between husband and wife. And he gets so like lost in the picture that he goes between heaven and the church. And then by verse 32, he kind of pops himself out of what he was saying. He says, this mystery is great. Like you think he's talking about husbands and wives and that relationship and the interconnectedness, but he says, this mystery is great, but I'm speaking in reference to Christ and the church, this, this intimacy this koinonia, this fellowship. And so here John is saying, we proclaim to you this word of life because we desire you to experience this intimacy that is available to us through Christ between our creator and ourselves. Intimacy, koinonia, fellowship. And he says fellowship with with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his son, Christ. So this like sort of this relationship that, that through Christ's sacrifice on the cross that we have access to by grace alone through faith, that we're grafted into this intimate relationship that we like can have a relationship that the, the closest thing we as humanity can understand is the relationship between a husband and wife. And I'm not sure that we can quite fathom this because this is, I mean, this is, this is overwhelming. Like we sang a song that I, like I, that's the second time I've heard it, the goodness of God, and I can't like sing it or attempt to sing it without tears coming to my eyes because it talks about, I don't know, like I, this is like a terrible with Bible memory. I'm terrible with memorizing stuff, but there's something along the lines of like, uh, oh, maybe, maybe you can help me, Teresa. I'll try to give you some clues. She's like desperately, like, something about like over the course of my life, like you have been so faithful. Am I close? All my life you have been faithful. All my life you've been so, so good. And I don't know about you, but my life from like the day I was born till now, it hasn't been just filled with like rose petals and like winning the lottery. And like, there's been like really hard and difficult things. And when you reach the point in your spiritual life where you have intimacy with God and you recognize that like, Back then when I was going there, God was being faithful to me. It seemed like a nightmare at the time, but God was faithful. That is a beautiful place to reach in your walk with Christ. And my prayer is that you would be able to achieve this and to reach this sort of koinonia with the Father. This is what the Apostle John desires for all of us. Verse 4. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. It depends on your translation. Most of the translations say that our joy may be made complete. You might have a translation that says, uh, uh, our joy, your joy be made complete. And it's like you could get in this big like circle about like, what is he saying? Is it your joy or is it our joy? Like, 
Before we sort of tackle that one, I think that you can make a case for both. On the subject of joy, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, there then is a very inadequate description and definition, and yet I suggest to you that we cannot get much further than these elements. Joy is something very deep and profound, something that affects the whole and entire personality. In other words, it comes to this. There, there is only one thing that can give true joy, and that it, it is a contemplation of the Lord Jesus Christ. He satisfies my mind. He satisfies my emotions. He satisfies my every desire. He and his great salvation include the whole personality and nothing less. And in him, I am complete. Joy, in other words, is the response and the reaction of the soul to a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this isn't about the, the whims of your day-to-day, whether you had a good breakfast or a bad breakfast, whether you're feeling sick or you're feeling well, whether you just lost somebody or you just gained somebody, whether your transmission went out or you won the lottery and you have a brand new car. This isn't about the, the tides of life that go up and down with, with things that, we, that, that come and go. This is about something deeper, that you can be in deep sorrow and pain and experience joy that exceeds what words are able to express. That your whole world, like Job, can be falling apart, and yet you can stand there and say, Lord, all I am is yours. I'll worship you for you are good. And, and whether this is your joy or our joy, I think it's both, because if you go to the end, or not the end, if you go to John chapter 15. I don't think I'm going to read all of the, I don't think I'm going to read all of these verses, but this is the section where Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. And he goes through this, this pruning process that if there's dead branches, they're going to get pruned away. And you think, well, no, my life's fruitful, so I'm going to get out of the pruning process. And then it says also that if you're producing fruit, well, those are going to be pruned also so that you can produce more fruit. And by the very end at verse 10, he says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Verse 11 is the point. These things I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. So it's kind of like there's joy in the Lord And as we walk with him, his joy becomes our joy. Uh, For the apostle John, seeing his children walk faithfully with the Lord, there's joy for them in walking faithfully. But as their spiritual leader, there's joy in his heart. One of the things I could never, like, I've now been in the ministry, I think, for like 18 years, I think is my, my count. It depends on where you, like, start from. And when I look over, like, my life in this capacity, The things that bring me like super joy are like, like the poor ejemplo in Espanol, you know, the, the Isaac picture, you know, to see this little boy who like, there's an you know, Isaac, he could be a thorn in your side. He could be annoying. Like, it's like, ah, Isaac, you know, like, stop it. Like, what do you, and then to see God chip away at him and, and for him just to keep walking faithfully, say, well, I think I want to play the piano. I want to do this and I want to do this. And then to see God, like, to see him submit himself to where God's calling him to do is not God's not calling everybody to be a missionary, but there's so much joy. Like for all of you, like 
For those of you who've like come from darkness into light and you're walking with the Lord and you're walking faithfully, there's joy in that. And for me, there's joy in being able to participate in this way to see God working in you. Like it's like it's it's like like baptisms are so special when we have these baptisms and we see like an individual like say you know you know what like you just got baptized his life was in a septic tank a couple years no no it's a, <laughs> like American septic and it's like then he's in a clean thing of water but it's like you know what I want to get baptized because God's been at work in my life and I'm like I want to take this step of profession this really in the Bible is the walking of the aisle it is the altar call is baptism this is what we see in the New Testament. And so when we see people say, you know what? No, it's time for me to publicly get out there and say, I've given my life to Jesus. There's no greater joy than to see this. And so as we walk with God, your joy can be made full through the ups and downs. So what do we do with this passage? We've been sort of in the weeds. And I want to reread these verses again just to kind of look at the whole thing. What was from the beginning, what we have heard and what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also so that you may have fellowship with us and indeed Our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. The world is telling us that if you want to find peace, happiness, joy, you know, whatever, there's a path that the world says, if you do this, you'll find happiness. And the world is a liar. Like the American dream doesn't provide true joy. Like it can't. This is why there's so many like multimillionaires who end up committing suicide because they get to the end and they realize that nothing satisfies, nothing ultimately, not a, not a, not a house, not a car, not a bank account, not like you fill in the blanks. These things don't provide what only Christ can provide. And John is saying, we saw him, we walked with him, we touched him, we saw him in his life, his earthly ministry, we saw him executed. John was there at the cross when Jesus says to him, listen, that woman there, my mom, she's now your mom, take care of her. John was there for all that. He saw the resurrected Christ. And at the end of his days, as he looks at the church and he sees the threats that are coming at the church, he says, I proclaim to you the word of life that in Jesus This is where eternity is, and he is your access to true joy, true peace, true koinonia, fellowship with the Father, and I'd long that you would enter in and that you would give your life to him because he is worthy. And regardless of what's happening in your world, if you have him, you have everything that you need. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this letter of 1 John. I thank you, Lord. It's... It's good to come back just to Jesus and to get like a heavy dose of who he is and why he is so valuable to us. Father, we thank you that we hold in our hands eyewitness accounts of those who
walked with, touched, gave their lives in telling us what they encountered in Christ. We thank you uh, for the spirit which enabled them to write and to record and to preserve preserve this history and these, uh, these overwhelming truths that we could have them. And Father, I do pray for each one of us that you would help us, Lord, to grow in our relationship with you, Lord. We recognize that we do not have it in our capacity uh, to get closer to you. The only way that we have access to get close to you, to have this fellowship with you, is by your spirit, by your leading, by your pulling us along. And so, Father, I pray that the prayer of our hearts at this church would be that we take you seriously and that we surrender to you and that we yield ourselves to you. It's so easy to get distracted by other things, maybe good things, But, Father, the thing that we need most is koinonia, fellowship, intimacy with you. For from that flows out everything. And so, Father, we pray that you would take away the confidence of our flesh, our own works, our good deeds, and that you would fill us with your grace and that we would understand all that Jesus has done for us and that we would be able to walk in this freedom and this newness of life, and that we would find joy and contentment and peace. Father, help us to steer our lives in the right direction. We need you, Lord. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Amen.